You're listening to The Tales We Tell, a podcast about spooky stories, unsolved mysteries, and local lore. I'm your host, Hannah Parch. And I'm Katie. Welcome back! I feel like I almost messed up that intro because I started thinking about it. Yeah, I was, I was too. There was a little bit of a pause. I was like, oh, I'm supposed to say my name. <laughs> it's just been, it's been a long day. Yeah. It's going to be another long day tomorrow. Yeah. After last week is a very long week. And yes. I'm just, I'm ready for my vacation. When is your vacation? Technically it starts Wednesday, but I still have to do some work on Wednesday. <laughs> well. So never. I feel like we're on the same page. I mean, I don't have a vacation coming up, but. We, it's Monday, everyone. <laughs> so last Thursday, I pushed out recording because everything just went to shit. And For me, literally. And then my job involves literal <laughs> shit. Oh, yeah. Mine sort of uh, peripherally involved uh, something similar to that. <laughs> then we were like, we'll do it on Sunday. Sunday is when we'll record. And then I spent a a small portion of the day day drinking at a bar. <laughs> and I spent a much larger portion of the day day drinking at a friend's backyard. Yeah, so I texted Katie and I was like, I completely forgot about recording. Honestly, I was feeling a little buzzed. Didn't feel like recording at all. And thank goodness, you were I, like, I've been drinking all day too. It's fine. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I have also forgotten. I have also been drinking all day. I also really do not want to record. Yeah. So here we are on Monday. <laughs> ready to go uh we don't have any announcements except that we got some really cute stickers in from the crafty criminologist aka Gemma. i feel like we should put one of them here in the altar somewhere Ooh. it's just like one of our you know like our patreon contributions yeah we need to spruce up the altar a little bit mm-hmm. we are drinking a pinot grigio not in cupcake flavor as yeah. jarek thought but by the brand yeah. Cupcake. It's the mm. cupcake. It's a pretty common, yeah. cheap brand. It's pretty good. It's decent. Okay. Ready to jump in? Let's do it. Okay. So today's episode is based largely on a documentary I watched that I'm hoping you have not seen. In 2009, filmmakers Joshua Zeman and Barbara Brancasio made a documentary about one of the local urban legends of their childhood on Staten Island. And that is the legend of Cropsy. <laughs> I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> okay, good. Cropsy is a boogeyman kind of figure. Allegedly, according to Staten Island lore, he lived in the tunnel system underneath an abandoned mental hospital. Very. It's a great setting for I know, a boogeyman. It really is. So some of the stories say that he was an escaped patient of the facility. Some of them said he had a hook for a hand. Some of them said he was a maniac who carried an axe and would snatch up children. So, Cropsy's kind of got a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. From what I can tell, it was... I mean, everyone has, like, a boogeyman, I feel like, Mm -hmm. in their childhood. I don't know why they named him Cropsy. I have... I never heard an explanation of that. I mean... I would imagine, I would picture him carrying a scythe instead of an axe. Yes. Like he harvests the crops. Like a crop. But yeah. I have. I, I then I feel like Cropsy would be kind of a cute nickname. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's 
I mean, it definitely is cutesy and like <laughs> doesn't sound intimidating at all, even though he's been described as a maniac uh, with an axe or a hook hand and yes. lives in the tunnels under an old <laughs> mental institution. Yes. And like most urban legends, parents would use the story to kind of warn their children to like, don't go over here at night or come home by this time. Or else Cropsy will get you. Or Cropsy will get you. You know, like all good parenting is. You know, one of those healthy lies that (laughs) parents tell their children. Is that negative reinforcement? I think so. (laughs) Well, like most urban legends, there are some grains of truth to the Cropsy legend. Staten Island was home to a mental hospital with a dark past known as Willowbrook State School. So, there, I watched two documentaries. I watched one called Cropsy, and then I watched this next one that I'm about to talk about. In 1972, a man, an investigative reporter named Geraldo Rivera, did an expose. Geraldo. Geraldo. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> Thank He's you. Pretty famous. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> he, I had never heard of him. Oops. He did an expose on Willowbrook. Um, and it was called Willowbrook, colon, The Last Great Disgrace. You can watch it on YouTube. It's like 20, 30 minutes long. So I'm going to tell you about that first before I get more into the actual Cropsy because... We get the background on yeah. the, the mental institution where he yes. lived underneath. Yes. So in... So the expose came out in 1972. Six years before that, Bobby Kennedy had visited Willowbrook and seen pretty terrible conditions and, like, told the press about it. And there's, like, video of him talking about these deplorable conditions and, oh, we need to change it. But nothing was ever done. So I don't know what the point of that was. So instead... I feel like that's me every single day at work. (laughs) This is bad for the environment. You need to change it. Well, no offense, but you're not a Kennedy... No, but I have a tattoo that was paid for by a Kennedy. So. I just recently heard about that. So basically what we're saying is you basically are a Kennedy and people should listen to you. That's right. <laughs> so one of the doctors at Willowbrook had um, contacted Rivera. And this doctor had been fired because he was urging families of patients to organize and demand better conditions. So he's a whistleblower. He's basically. a whistleblower, basically. So, Rivera and his camera crew showed up unannounced for a tour of Willowbrook. And the footage from inside, I don't know, and it must have been, I watched it a bunch of times, it must have just been poor lighting inside. The way that it's shot literally makes it look like it's pitch black and the only lights are from the cameras, which makes it terrifying. Because what you see is... Super overcrowded conditions. They said there was about one attendant for every 50 patients. Oh, that is not. Yeah. No. (laughs) And it should have been closer to one attendant for every three to four patients. Yeah. It's children and... Depending on the severity of their issues. Exactly. And from what you can see, there are some severe conditions in Willowbrook. It's children and young adults... There's, like, no furniture. They're all laying or sitting on the floor. Most of them are naked. Some of them are, like, basically, like, barely clothed. Um, Some of them are just covered in their own feces. Some of them are in different kinds of straitjackets just to be restrained. 
there's no instruction, there's no activity, there's no structure. It's literally just like a giant room. It, it's yeah. it's like a shed where you throw your unwanted things and yes. just let them sit there and forget about them. Yes. It's very disturbing. According to the doctor that had contacted Rivera, there were over 5,000 patients. Also according to them, according to him, 100% of the patients at Willowbrook contracted hepatitis within their first six months there? Well, I mean, if they're sitting around in their feces, like when you talked about just the overcrowding Mm -hmm. and the, what, 50 patients to one Mm -hmm. attending, yeah, there's no way that any kind of hygiene standards are being met there at all. So hepatitis, which is, I believe, contracted mostly through, like, bodily fluids, Various kinds of hepatitis, obviously. They didn't specify. Um, Also, parasites were very common there. So just lots of disease, really unsanitary. He also, Rivera also visited another nearby school. So this kind of turned into not just an expose on Willowbrook, but on, like, mental institutions in general. odd that they refer to them as schools, though. Yeah, well... And he talks about that. They talk a lot about, like, there's no instruction going on. It's not a school. It's, like, a, a facility that nothing is happening. Like, there's no... It's a waiting room. Yeah. And I think at one point they talked about, um, because they were so overcrowded, and it's it's obviously, it's a, a funding issue. It's not like the people who work there just are uncaring. Well, I mean, this doctor who is, you know, trying to mm-hmm. help expose the issues is not doing it just out of spite he's yeah. doing it out of probably you know genuine concern yeah. for the patients who are in the, in the residents who are there yeah because it's bad it needs to change for the better and this is how you know yeah. you, you shine the light on the problem yeah and that's how it gets fixed yeah they talked about having they they didn't have anyone who was teaching um the kids or the young adults or the the patients there the ones who weren't able to feed themselves like Typically, in an institution like this or in a school, that is something that you you work with a patient and eventually they are able to feed them. You know, they just, mm-hmm. it's they need instruction. It's not, they're not, like, stuck in one way. They just have developmental delays or disabilities that just need extra time. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have the staff or the time, so he said each patient got, like, three minutes of feeding time where they would just take whatever food it was, turn it into a mush, and then just, like, spoon it into the person's mouth. Try and get them to get as and it was much just, as possible and in I'm sure, minutes. Yeah, and I'm sure on their part it was, well, we have to feed them, and this is, they've given me 50 patients and, you know, 30 minutes to do it. So this is the only way to, it's a lose-lose situation. Mm-hmm. So, he also goes to another nearby school called Letchworth Village Rehabilitation Center. This one, it basically is the same thing, but in this one, there is a congressman, Congressman Biagi, I think, unimportant. He was visiting to, he was doing like a a Bobby Kennedy thing. He was like, I'm going to visit and like, you know, be outraged. So, you see him, and he's like, who's in charge here? Who's in charge? Like, why is... What's going on? And this woman is like, um, we're understaffed and underfunded. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And they... You're a congressman. You vote on the budget. Yeah, like... Think about this come budget time. (laughs) 
And they show him a whole, they have a whole empty ward. And it can house, I forget how many other people. But the assistant director's there, and he's telling this congressman, like, we need 38 staff members to, like, make this functional and to run. Like, 38 additional. And the congressman keeps, he's like, this is unbelievable. How can this be? This is, this is just completely unbelievable. And no joke, the assistant director literally looks at him and is like, we applied for the extra funding, so I guess I hope we get it. Like, I don't know what you want me to, <laughs> I'm literally telling you how to fix it. You're a congressman. I don't. Anyways. Hey, as a congressman, when you got elected, did you just <laughs> not spend any money in order to get elected? Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure you did, and therefore you know that money is how things happen. Yeah. So give it, us the appropriate funding so that we can actually do this job and take care of these people like we're supposed to. Yeah. It was just, it was very frustrating because the whole thing, it's like, yes, it's shedding light on this problem, but it's like, okay, you can have Bobby Kennedy come and see this. That doesn't mean anything's going to change. Like, unless you're actively taking measures to so not to get too deep into this but it does have a they did show some good examples of actual schools for people with um mental disabilities or delays or whatever and this was in california it did start to get a little bit eugenicsy towards the mm-hmm. end like i don't like the sound of the that tiniest way so it was a really good school it talked about you know it's appropriately staffed and they actually you know work with the patients mm-hmm. you know to develop skills and stuff but they said we also counsel parents who have a child with a mental disability and we counsel them to not have any more kids because it's a genetic if it's a genetic trait and then they talked about advising uh, abortions when pregnancy shows genetic problems with children. So, so yeah, it a little, it's a little problematic, but... It was not as bad as I was expecting when no, he started going in that direction. They're, they're not trying to, like, I don't know, eradicate people. No. They were saying that, yeah, I mean, they were trying to prevent... I think it from happening and not because there's anything you know like wrong with these people right. who are that do have these disabilities but because it's going to be an extra burden I guess on the families yeah and it's like lowering your risk of having another child yeah that either has to live full-time or even part-time in this facility and need all of this extra care yeah. and yeah yeah which, that in itself, just the whole idea of, like, the way people view children who have mental disabilities kind of is an overarching theme of this legend. It kind of, it weaves its way in in all sorts of ways. So, starting with that, Willowbrook did eventually close, not until 1987, so it's a little bit of whatever, the Cropsey lore says that when it did close, some of the patients, when they were moved to different facilities, because you can't just close it and send everyone home. Right. So they were moved to different facilities. The lore says that some of the patients either kind of got lost in the shuffle, which we know how Willowbrook was operating, so likely. Entirely possible. <laughs> or that they might have gotten confused and returned to just this place that they were familiar with. So... That's where we're starting. 
In July of 1987, so the same year that Willowbrook closed, a 12-year-old girl named Jennifer Schweiger goes missing from her home in Staten Island. And when Josh, the guy who made the documentary, when he was talking about this, they said, well, when did you start to think that there might be some truth to the Cropsey legends? And he said, when kids in Staten Island started disappearing. <laughs> so that's what we're, that's where we're at. So Jennifer's 12. She had Down syndrome. And she was last seen when she went on a short walk near her house. So at this point, 1987, the entire community is like... Staten Island is not huge, so it's a a close-knit community. So they were pretty rocked. Yes, and the whole community comes together to help look for her. Sorry, there's a bug trying to fly into my wine. Witnesses say that they saw Jennifer walking with a 43-year-old local homeless man named Andre Rand. Rand was known to make small camps out in the woods near the old Willowbrook building, and he quickly became the lead suspect in Jennifer's disappearance. Rand had also worked at Willowbrook as an orderly, a physical therapist, and a custodian. They were short-staffed. <laughs> of which I'm probably, I'm sure he probably only had the credentials for custodian. Yes. So he was eventually arrested for Jennifer's kidnapping. This is still in the midst of the whole search. And they have a video of him being apprehended. They, I don't know where they're taking him out from, but it's a video of him being led to a police car in handcuffs. And he... So this is the first introduction to him. He's in basically a catatonic state. He has this really blank look on his face. He's kind of being forced to walk. He's not really walking on his own. And he has, like, this string of drool coming from his mouth. He look. I mean, he looks... Sounds like he might have been a patient at... Right. So, he kind of immediately fits this idea of Cropsy. He's this kind of big, scary guy who may have had some kind of learning disabilities or may have had a, a place at Willowbrook, not just as an employee... And he was last seen with this little girl who disappeared. So he kind of takes on this creepy, I don't know, image. Aura. Aura, thank you. Meanwhile, the search for Jennifer continues. They still haven't found her. So all they have him on is they just, a witness said that they saw her with him. So they've arrested him for her kidnapping. 35 days after the search for Jennifer starts, her body was discovered in a shallow grave just 150 yards from Rand's campsite near the old Willowbrook site. Mm. Lividity in the body showed that perhaps she had been moved there after her death, which just means... So I was also, I was mm-hmm. holding back, but the fact that the first suspect or the first person that they pointed to mm-hmm. was someone who lives on the fringes of society. Yep. And it's unfair that these people just because this is how they live, whether it's by choice or not, mm-hmm. they are stigmatized because right. of it. And, you know, they're made out to be these horrible monsters mm-hmm. when more often than not it's not the sketchy looking homeless guy. It's the you know, the family guy with yeah. the, the button-up job who's totally like, I would never suspect because he's so normal yeah. and always friendly, but really he is a monster. Or like the 15-year-old sociopath who 
no one suspects because he's a sociopath and that's how they work. Mm -hmm. And also because he's 15. Mm. This is true. So so the fact that, sorry, the fact that (laughs) it looked like her body had been moved Mm -hmm. closer to his campsite, it looked like whoever did kill her, Mm -hmm. you know, was seizing on an opportunity. Yeah. 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 He just kind of capitalized on, you know, and was like, this is how I can add fuel to the fire behind people thinking that this is the guy. Yeah. So there was no physical evidence. You've kind of caught on to this. There's not any physical evidence that ties Andre Rand to Jennifer. I was not able to find her cause of death, um, which I think is fine because I don't want to know how a 12-year-old was murdered. But regardless, the community is outraged. They, you know, are full on behind this idea that this creepy homeless man, you know, they found this little girl's body near where he camps and he's creepy and he looked weird when he was being arrested. So it must be him. So he gets charged with both kidnapping and murder. The prosecution is relying almost entirely on circumstantial evidence and eyewitness accounts, which are famously unreliable. Mm -hmm. And so they're not able to convict him on murder, but he does get convicted of kidnapping Jennifer because he was the last one seen with her, I guess. And he's sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. After this case, the police began to look at other unsolved disappearances in the area, specifically those of children. So we've got, there's four in particular that they look at. In 1972, a five-year-old named Alice Pereira went missing. In 1981, a seven-year-old named Holly Ann Hughes went missing. In 1983, a 10-year-old girl named Tahise Jackson, who did have some kind of learning disability, they were not specific, goes missing. And in 1984, a 22-year-old named Hank Gaforio, who, again, had some kind of delay. They, I think they just said he had a low IQ. He goes missing. They never found any of these kits, and these are all open-ended or, you know, unsolved cases. Yeah, because they didn't need their bodies to be moved to help uh, frame another yeah. person. <laughs> so... Just to kind of go through a couple of these, Alice Pereira and Hank Gaforio were never, they were never really able to make a solid connection to Andre Rand. Obviously, the community kind of speculated. Alice was, let's see, she was abducted near her apartment, I think, and Rand was a maintenance man at her apartment. Police also, she also had a broken family, and I think police just assumed her father had taken her. I'm not sure where that investigation went, but it was left unsolved and they would there was never able there was never any official connection to rand and then hank gaforio just that really loose you know yeah just happened to work at the apartment complex where she lived and honestly so much of this is like he was seen at this place where she was also seen three days later and it's like okay well katie was also seen at (laughs) the piggly wiggly where i was seen four days later but did she murder me? Probably. I don't know. Check the meat truck. <laughs> I don't trust the meat there. So, yeah, if he's working at this apartment complex mm-hmm. while she's living there and while her while she disappears, like it's not nothing, mm-hmm. but it's not a smoking gun. No. And so, like it, it definitely doesn't look good for him. But I'm sure there's there's other things, right? That that would be much more consequential. And so, like I. I'm not saying that he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. 
I'm just saying that he should not have been convicted of kidnapping. Right. I'm glad he wasn't convicted of the murder because there's just no evidence right. to it. So similarly with Hank Gaforio, the 22-year-old, he the only connection that I saw, which was very loose, is that he appeared in news footage when Holly went missing. So she, I'm telling these out of order. Holly went missing in 81. Hank goes missing in 84. When Holly Ann goes missing, her parents are like a, um, what's the I'm thinking of, a press conference. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. you know. Holly, come home to us, or whoever has Holly, please bring her home. Yeah. You know. It's either something like that, or it's the people who are searching for her, but it, it appears on the local news, and Hank is in, he's like standing right behind the person who's talking. But again, this is not <laughs> a huge community. Yeah. And I mean... Was he homeless at this point? Or, like, while he was working at Willowbrook, did he have an actual home or place to live? It's unclear from what I could see later. Um, I don't know when... So there, there is a tunnel system underneath Willowbrook, and it's unclear whether he was... whether that was something that was being used by Willowbrook when it was functional... I think I I read somewhere that he would live in his or he was staying in his car mm-hmm. kind of around the time he was working at Willowbrook. So it kind of made it sound like he never really had a permanent residence on Staten Island. And I mean if he was known to the community as like the local homeless man, yeah. like yeah, he's going to be out and about and around places and Yeah. It's, I mean, maybe he's just a nice guy and he heard about this child that went missing and so mm-hmm. he wanted to get more information and since he's out and about and done, you know, doesn't yeah. have a house, he might as well go look for her. And- yeah. Well, and again, with Hank Gaffario, I think his brother, or someone who knew him was like, yeah, his brother, his brother always thought that Rand killed him or took him or something. And it, I get that it's this unsolved disappearance and the families want closure and it's much easier to blame someone who's already been blamed for something. But I could not see any actual connection between the two of them. No, the, our society is just, we're, we're so easily terrified and then so easily placated. Like, we just, we yeah. need somebody to blame mm-hmm. so that the the victim's families can move on and yeah. get their closure and be okay. And everyone just needs somebody to point a finger at. And all too often, people are more than happy to just pick the, you know, someone on the fringe of society yeah. or... You know, and just crucify whoever they think deserves it. So, Tahis Jackson disappeared. So, she was in 83. I'm kind of working backwards now. (laughs) She disappeared while going to the store for a friend. The only connection to Rand that I could find for her was that her disappearance was just 12 days after Rand was released from prison. So, I'm going to get into his background. He's not actually squeaky clean, but he was in prison for on a kidnapping charge. And it was 12... Okay, well, that really doesn't help his... uh... (laughs) Yeah. It was 12 days after he got released that Tahis went missing. So now, this brings us to Holly Ann Hughes, who... She went missing in 1981. She had gone to the store to buy a bar of soap and never came home. Some witnesses say that Rand was at the store when she was buying the soap. That's wishy-washy. There's one witness... Okay. This girl's name is Tanya Goodson... She came forward, like, years later. I think the trial for this took place in 2004. And just for context, and I am 
I don't want to offend anyone on this, but to give you an idea of what Tanya looks like, Tanya is a white woman. Tanya also has half cornrows, so like from her hairline to like the crown of her head, and it is in a pattern. And she also has an eyebrow piercing and some poorly styled eyebrows. Granted, it's in 2004, but right before they showed her in the documentary, they talked about how former alcoholics and drug addicts were coming forward suddenly with these very clear memories of what happened to Holly Ann. Nope. Okay. So... I'm not buying it. (laughs) Tanya later testified that she had been with Holly the day she disappeared and that Andre Rand had pulled up to them in a car and had offered them candy before grabbing Holly and driving away. (laughs) I'm assuming this is when Tanya was also a child. Yes. Tanya, I think, is five at the time that this happened. But also, would you not... Like, was she actually friends with Holly? It said that they were playmates. Holly was seven when she disappeared. So mm-hmm. seven and five, close enough. I mean, they might have, like, lived down the street yeah. from each other or same apartment complex thing. Like, so, yeah. So she also said that Rand had been wearing a mask so she couldn't see his face. But then how did she know it was him? I don't know. <laughs> and also, she, this is the first time she's ever said anything about, oh... That girl that disappeared, oh, I suddenly remember very clearly actually what happened because I was there and this is exactly what happened. Attention hogs who just want to insert themselves into a case for their 15 minutes of fame. It's very suspicious. She also claimed to have known lots of other kids who had disappeared, including, and this is the way she said it, Tanisha, which I'm assuming she means Tahise Jackson. I I think she just forgot the name. Or slash didn't actually know Tahise. Tanisha. <laughs> Tanisha. So, in 2004, Rand is, uh, Andre Rand is officially charged with the kidnapping of Holly Ann Hughes. So, lots of people like Tanya are coming forward suddenly with these very clear memories. One woman that Josh and Barbara interviewed for the documentary said that she knew Rand had kidnapped Holly Ann because he looked like a killer. She also claimed that she had heard Holly scream, let me go, on the day she disappeared. Where was this person when... I have no idea. (laughs) When the kidnapping was taking place? Why didn't she, I don't know, call 911 after she heard a small child yelling, let me go? Yeah, and why did no one say, like, hey, has anyone seen this? Oh, little Tanya, you saw this man that everyone knows pull up in a... This is in the 80s. People have televisions. It's Uh, on the news. It's it's, in the newspaper. Like, there's no way for you to just not know that this happened and be like, you know, I heard somebody yelling, you know, let let me go, but I haven't seen anything about it, so I guess that's nothing. It's probably fine. (laughs) I wonder if it has anything to do with this major kidnapping that I keep hearing about on the news and seeing in the papers. So, it... (sighs) It's this whole crazy thing. All these people are coming forward with suddenly these very specific memories. And somehow, in October of 2004, Andre Rand is convicted of also kidnapping Holly Ann. And he gets sentenced to an additional 25 years to life. So I think he was coming up on parole when mm-hmm. this happened. And so they were pushing really hard. They were just waiting to, to not let him yeah. go out. So with this conviction, his new parole eligibility date is 2037. How old is he going to be then? Dead? He's going to be in his 90s, I think. So dead. Yeah. So a lot of people who were interviewed in this documentary, which 
I don't know if I said, it's just called Cropsy. It was on Netflix. I think it's on maybe Tubi now. I watched it on YouTube. Hmm. So it's on there for free. So you get the impression from all these interviews of people that Randa is definitely a scapegoat. 100%. Yeah. Like, again, I'm not saying he's not <laughs> guilty. Right. I'm just saying that he is not guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yes. And he's very much remembered, according to people's memories, as just creepy and it reminds me a lot of this is going to be the most obscure reference i don't think you're going to know what i'm talking about when i was little there was a cartoon it was a christian cartoon that i think you could only get from the church library called mcgee and me i've seen it okay (laughs) (laughs) all right well if you haven't seen mcgee and me it's a probably a 12-year-old boy who draws a cartoon named McGee, and he comes to life and teaches him values. And the only episode I remember is one where there was a scary house in the neighborhood, and everyone said that there was a man there who ate, like, rabbits and squirrels and kids and I was about to say, and children. (laughs) And for whatever reason, the kid... What's wrong with a man eating rabbits and squirrels? Like, if he goes and hunts and forages his own food and, you know, like, kills them humanely, like, go for him. He's being responsible. He's not contributing to greenhouse gases. Exactly. I think he had, like, a bunch of animal traps on his porch or something. Mm. And I don't know how the kid ended up... I don't know. He kicked a soccer ball. I don't know. Yeah. Baseball through the window. Yeah. Anyways, he ends up, he ends up like going up onto the porch and it's this big man comes to the door and it's super scary and he's, it's very Boo Radley vibes. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. (laughs) The classic novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. But then he finds out that this man is just a very kind, gentle soul who rescues injured animals and nurses them back to health and he's just... No one has taken the time to really understand his eccentricities. Eccentricities. Thank you. Also a more uh, relatable reference. Uh, Yes, please. The Sandlot. Oh, yeah, The Sandlot. Pretty much everyone has seen The Sandlot. Also a dated reference, but okay. There's The Beast. Uh Uh-huh. A.K.A. Hercules, who is a big slobbering mastiff. A.K.A. the goodest snuggle boy. Bug. Oh, yeah. He's a teddy bear. <laughs> and then, you know, mean old man, whatever his name yeah. is. He's, you know, like, will kill children. He's just a baseball lover. Yeah. And it's just a dog. And he totally relates to these kids. And, you know, like, they knock down the fence and everything's great. Spoiler alert. Sorry. <laughs> Gosh, um, Katie. But, yes, it's that, that um, preconceived notions mm-hmm. or just... Everyone having this, you know, idea of someone without anyone actually knowing this person. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm now going to tell you a little bit about Andre Rand. Because the interesting thing about this story is that... He might actually be a little bit of a monster. Yeah, it's like he was 100% a scapegoat for this crime. There, Someone, I think, told him... So during the whole documentary, Josh and Barbara are kind of communicating with him. They're writing letters back and forth with him in prison and, you you know, all this stuff. And he said that someone said to him, I think on the bus, being transported somewhere, he was saying he was innocent and the guy said, well, you might be, but you're going to be a martyr for for all the missing children out there. Like, basically saying, 
Yeah, you might not have done this one, but everyone needs someone to blame. Like, the community needs someone to blame. That's what I'm saying, that they need a to somewhere to point their finger mm-hmm. and they need it fast so that they can start to heal. They, yeah. so, you know, people cannot deal with pain and loss and suffering. Yeah. And they, they have to, they are, they are in pain and they don't want to be. And yeah. it, it has to be somebody's fault. It's somebody yeah. it's, it's, there's a reason for their suffering Yeah. And they need to find somebody to blame and somebody to punish so yeah. that they suffer also. Yes. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, sure, but not necessarily <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and again, it's he was definitely a scapegoat, but also he was definitely not uh, completely blameless for many reasons that I'm about to tell you about. So... Um, Andre's father died when he was very young, and his mother was sent to Pilgrim State Hospital, which was a mental hospital. And Rand and his sister would visit her a lot. Oh no, did she have hysteria? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> AKA depression. Mm, like, Sorry. Um, so they would visit her as teenagers, and it was noted that Pilgrim State had an almost identical layout to Willowbrook. I don't know if that was just a common thing in, like, the 60s. I think a lot of mental hospitals are actually kind of, like, laid out Mm -hmm. in very similar ways. Um, You know, especially since they needed certain facilities or, like, Mm -hmm. certain types of facilities and housing. And also tunnels under Mm -hmm. uh, institutions like this, I think, are actually extremely common, especially in, like, the Northeast or anywhere that it gets extremely cold. Because... A lot of these mental institutions are not just one building. Uh-huh. Anytime that there's multiple buildings, a way that they get, uh, you know, patients like from one building to okay. another is, you know, especially if it's a blizzard outside yeah. or something, is they take them through the tunnels that connect That's these buildings. Really cool and very creepy. Yeah, cool <laughs> and creepy and like very smart. Yeah, um, plenty of times I wish I had a tunnel. Yeah. Because, I mean, mean, some of these patients are totally fine to just, like, kind of walk on their own. Mm -hmm. Others, you know, they definitely need assistance, whether it's, you know, like, they physically Mm -hmm. need assistance or it's just they kind of walk in a shuffle. Yeah. Um, But it's it's easier to also, also because if they break loose from you... They don't have anywhere to really run. That's they they can smart. run from the building that they came from or the building that they're going to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I never thought that's very smart. <laughs> you look at me like I thought of it. <laughs> Good job, Katie, <laughs> coming up with that system. Cheers. <laughs> so, I'm brilliant. <laughs> you are. There, I have a compliment to tell you later that um, I heard from someone this weekend. Hmm. Remind me. Okay. Okay, there was a man named Bob Graham who knew Andre when he, in the late 60s and early 70s, this was the one who said that he thought he lived in his car behind Willowbrook. Mm -hmm. He said that the tunnel system underneath Willowbrook, I'm assuming, again, after it's done being used, was a popular place for the homeless to camp, and that Rand allegedly had a small following of other homeless people who, I guess, kind of looked to him for leadership, maybe? Well, I mean, if he worked at this place, he knew well, you know, very well about the tunnels, Mm -hmm. and so I'm sure, 
you know, also being homeless himself and kind of being in that community, Mm -hmm. he was able to be like, hey, instead of nearly freezing to death this winter, Mm -hmm. come stay here in the tunnels. And so kind of like a self-appointed leader. Like, he knew about the tunnels, Mm -hmm. therefore they're his tunnels. And he has invited these people to come and stay with him. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. Just kind of putting himself in that position of... Yeah. Leadership. He did seem to have some kind of, uh, like, following, I guess, in the homeless community. There's, I don't know, another way to put that. In 1969, he was arrested for kidnapping and attempting to rape a nine-year-old. So, not great. He served 16 months in prison, because, you know, that's all the time you need when you try to rape a child. And was released in 1972, which was the same year that Alice Pereira disappeared. Again, mm-hmm. no official connection. In 1980... Other than he was free and a few months yeah. later she was missing. <laughs> yes. In 1983... So I, f- I found this story after... I found the official version of the story after I watched the documentary. In the documentary, there is a man named Thomas Jenkins who is remembering it because he was one of the children involved. So in 1980... So someone was actually a first-person uh, Yes, witness. finally a first-person wow. account. So in 1983, Rand rounded up 11 children who were playing at the YMCA and asked them if they wanted to go on a field trip. And the way this guy Thomas is describing, he's like, we were all kids, and we're like, yeah, sure, sounds great. This was before Stranger Danger. Yes. So he takes... He, like... Puts all these kids in his, I think he had a van or a bus or something, and he drives them out to Newark Airport, which is not now close. Now, that's one hell of a field trip. <laughs> that's not close to Staten Island. He buys them burgers. Like, I think they just went to the airport and just, like, watched planes take off. And, which is kind of fun, which, admittedly. You know, fun. And then he takes them, Thomas thinks he took them back to Willowbrook Park, which I guess is just the name of the area where the mm-hmm. the old building was like a neighborhood yeah kind of a thing so he didn't hurt them at all and eventually he i guess takes them back to the ymca thomas said that he thought that he was like we had no idea that we were being kidnapped we just thought we were playing they probably thought it might have (laughs) been like something the y was doing yeah and he said he thinks that rand realized that he was in over his head hadn't thought his plan through And so he let everyone go so he could, like, kind of rethink. Right. So he was arrested for this. Yeah. Someone told on him. And he served, I read 10 months in jail, but if he was released 12 days before Tahise Jackson went missing, this all happened January 9th, Tahise Jackson went missing August 13th. So maybe he was sentenced but had an early release. Yeah, so he spends at least seven months. And as of his arrest for the Jennifer Schweiger case, he's been in jail since 1989. So he's not been released at all because he got reconvicted. So he's been in jail as long as I've been alive. Yes. (laughs) I feel like I shouldn't be laughing at this person's misery, but at the same time, he also put himself in jail for Shorzy's at least twice. Yeah, I mean, he for sure definitely kidnapped 11 children whether or not he had ill intentions, unclear. And he, f- I would say, for sure tried to rape a nine-year-old. Yeah, which- I mean, we haven't looked into that case or mm-hmm. anything, so we don't know if this is more just circumstantial. But I'm also 
imagining too. Like, what year was the uh, the kidnapping from the YMCA of the multiple children? That was 1983. And what year did Willowbrook close? 1987. Okay. I think. Let me double check that before I. Do you know when he started working at Willowbrook? I don't know. I I assume in the 60s because Bob Graham said in the 60s and 70s he was living in his car behind Willowbrook. Okay. And when was his first arrest? 1969. So I was kind of thinking that after he got out of jail the first Mm -hmm. time, difficult to find a job, difficult to find a place to live within Mm -hmm. his parole requirements. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I, I don't know what the statistics are on this, but I feel like a lot of people who are released from prison do go just live on the streets because they are yeah. unable because there's no real support system for yeah. after uh, release yeah. and so you know it's entirely possible that that's when he maybe just started living in his car yeah and then from there it just kind of you know yeah. became homeless and again probably possibly a lot through circumstance but probably also somewhat through choice too mm-hmm. it's actually really sad I mean not to get too much into that again but like you said, when people are incarcerated for whatever reason, I mean, people get put in jail for very silly things these days, but it, there's not really a, it's like you go to jail, you lose your job, you're not making any money. It's like you get out of jail and they're just like, here's your stuff back, I guess. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's very hard for people. If you're living in an apartment, you've lost that apartment. Yeah, all of your stuff because you haven't paid rent because you've been in jail. Yeah, all of your stuff gets sold or thrown away. Yeah, so you have nothing but what you went into jail with. Yeah, and you come out, you have no place to live, no, nothing. Yeah, and instead you have all of these rules that you have to follow. Like, mm-hmm. so I don't, I don't know the what the rules are. You know, after just like a regular, you know, you've served your time and now Mm -hmm. you're released versus parole. But I know that like with parole, you know, you've got to, you you can only live within this Mm -hmm. radius of this city. And, you know, you're not allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do that. And you can't, you know, and so it's, it's very hard to also just even find a job if you've ever been convicted of a felony and so um there's a campaign about that called ban the box uh it's about so on a lot of job applications there is a little box that says have you ever been convicted of a felony if so explain (laughs) and yeah if so explain and like so for everyone once you check yes a lot of times you, they just throw it out yeah Yeah. your application goes straight into the shredder and that is it and so you know, a lot of these people who, if some people, again, they may have been wrongly, wrongfully convicted, mm-hmm. it may have been something stupid that they were just there for yeah. and not actually, like, willfully committing, but they still, you know, received, you know, accessory or whatever. Yeah. Um, or it could even be, yeah, people did something bad, but they really are trying to turn their life around and, like, absolutely yeah. can when given the chance are no none of these people are being given the chance yeah. it's um, hard to prevent reoffending when you're not when you're kind of putting people back in the worst possible situation you yeah. could be in and so i'm not trying to like preach about how absolutely we need to ban the box because i'm you know yeah. some people agree with it some people don't i'm just saying for anyone interested there is a it's called ban the box yeah it's a campaign um and yeah, yeah. it is interesting to 
think, I mean, again, not trying to, to go on any sides, but um, I think it is an interesting discussion to have, you know, with... For some reason, yeah. prison reform is just something I, I, I care about. This, I don't know. I don't know enough about. But there's a, so I many layers to it. it. Yeah, it's like I feel like I feel like there's got to be a podcast series out there somewhere that goes into it, and I could just listen to it for maybe a month. I mean, when I was a kid, I got put in time out all the time, and psh, I never learned my lesson because you're a bad kid. Yeah, I'm a bad kid. I mean, we've already discussed this. You are that's, a psychopath. That's why the cops are after me now. I know. <laughs> So I'm going to go into one of the main theories about Andre Rand. I don't know why I keep wanting to call him Andrew. Was our favorite satanic cult theories. Awesome! So in 1987, during the investigation into Jennifer's disappearance, so Jennifer Schweiger, the first one that kicked all this off, Mm -hmm. the first one, also the last one. Yeah, the the first one we talked about. (laughs) Yes. We started at the end. We did start at the end. Her parents received a letter from a woman named Veronica Lucan, who was the leader of what they called a local religious group, also known as a cult. Veronica claimed in her letter that Rand had taken Jennifer and that he had been supplying children to the Church of the Process. And if that sounds familiar to anyone, it did not to me. That is the satanic cult that David Berkowitz claimed helped him commit the Son of Sam murders. I was about to say, I'm like, I know <laughs> like, it's it's sparking yes. neurons in my brain and I can't put any of it together. I really, I haven't watched the new Netflix series on the Son of Sam murders, but I'm really interested in it. Which means I don't know anything about them so far other than basic pop culture knowledge. Right. So Veronica further went on in this letter to claim that all of the children that had been abducted were part of the satanic black mass. And she said that Andre didn't kill Jennifer, but had just delivered her to the coven. Getting very Michelle remembers vibes here. Uh So Josh and Barbara find out about this and they're like, Hey, let's see if Veronica's still around. She is. So they go to one of her like I don't know it was, it was I don't know if it's meeting they didn't talk to her but they talked to one of her followers who would not be on camera and she said that Veronica back in the 80s had had visions of satanic high priests stabbing her on an altar and the all stabbing stabbing Veronica, Veronica okay. herself and also claimed that there was a hit out on Veronica by the high priests and that was why this follower would not go on camera or give her name because she thought that they there was also maybe a hit on her it was whole thing wow these people are <laughs> are these the the people that got lost in the shuffle when uh willowbrook closed unclear because they clearly <laughs> they need to talk to somebody well Oh, there's okay. There's okay. I'm just gonna keep going because I'm there's, like I, I know I'm I'm getting close to like insulting people's religious beliefs, but like well, this is I think very clearly a cult. It didn't. Yeah. It had some like Roman Catholic vibes, some Lady of the something vibes, but I think it was clear to everyone it's very much a cult. Mm-hmm. So there's another man whose name is Jack Whitford. The the title he was given was Stapleton Civilian Observation Patrol, 
which I think is similar to Neighborhood Watch person. He he, I, I don't think he worked for any kind of official law enforcement. No, it's just one of those self-imposed <laughs> titles that people yeah claim in order to make themselves feel more important. He told Josh and Barbara that he thinks Rand buried Alice Pereira's body in a cemetery in one of the graves that were already there. So he thinks that, you know, the graves that are like have the cement, um, almost like a mausoleum, but in the ground. Mm-hmm. He thinks he took one of that took one of those and like pried the top off of it and put her body in there and then closed it up so no one would find her. Which is probably a smart idea, but where did you get that idea, Jack Whitford? <laughs> suspect i I I don't know how (laughs) difficult those are because like that stone well that that stone is heavy heavy his evidence for this is that there was a small camp found in this particular cemetery he was talking about no proof that it was rand's camp just a camp and he also said that he thought rand sold kids for cult activities And when Josh asked him why he thought this, he just said, because the son of Sam was into cults. So, a little bit of a reach. More baseless accusations. Yeah. There was some evidence of, quote, cult activities that were found in the woods near Willowbrook. Don't know what that means. They didn't elaborate. But also, there, again, was nothing specifically... A.K.A. just some kids messing around. Yeah, kids messing around. When they... Barbara and Josh went out to Willowbrook, like, at night, and (laughs) Barbara was the smart one. She's like, I'm not going in there. Like, are you crazy? (laughs) And... But they, they ended up walking around, and they were hearing some things, and it turned out to literally be a group of kids, like teenagers, who were also out there looking for ghosts and, like, mm-hmm. trying to scare each other. So it was, it's very self-fulfilling. Nothing was ever found specifically tying Rand to any cult activity. And the police, d- like, investigated this, and they never officially found him to be involved in any cults. They did acknowledge that there probably were some, they said, quote, devil worship in the area. And they did note that the founder of the Church of the Process does live on Staten Island, <laughs> but nothing ever was officially tied to... Correlation does not mean causation. Yes, thank you. So, another theory, and this to me possibly holds the most water. I'm just going to tell you and let you decide. So, there's a man named Reverend Musket. And <laughs> <laughs> Musket is just such a fun word. It's a fun musket name. Musky, muskrat. Lots of fun things we can say with it. So, Reverend Musket housed Rand before his arrest during the Jennifer Schweiger investigation. And he did this because the police asked him to. He said that the kind of perception from the public was that he, they were his friends, or his family was friends with Rand and that they were being generous and offering him a place to stay while all this was happening, but the only reason they did it is because the, the police asked them to. I mean, it also is, you know, he's a priest, right? Yeah, or reverend. Reverend, or yeah. So, I mean, he's, you know, giving giving this homeless man mm-hmm. a, you know, a shelter. Yeah. 
to to stay in. Yeah. But also literal as a, biblical t- commands, by the way. <laughs> doing God's work. Um, but it's also a way for um, you know someone to keep an eye on him. Yeah. And exactly. it's like you know okay, it's not law enforcement keeping an eye on him, which mm-hmm. you know people are afraid of law enforcement, but you know people aren't supposed to be afraid of. Um, Priests. Priests yeah. or reverends, whomever. Yeah. And there's also the entire possibility, too, that while he's there, he might, you know, try to, like, the, the reverend might try to counsel him and yeah. talk to him. And Rand might give up some information to this person that yes. he would not divulge to, you know, a detective or yes. whomever. Which he did. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so, according to Reverend Musket, so... Josh asked, Josh and Barbara asked him, you know, do you think that he took Jennifer? And he said, yeah, he told me he took her. He said the reason, so this is a lot of he said, she said, Reverend Musket said that Rand told him that the reason he took Jennifer was because he thought her family didn't want her. He said also, Rand said that he felt that people with mental disabilities were burdens to their family and shouldn't be alive. And the way I kind of took that was he... Not a psychologist, but <laughs> mommy issues. I think I think what he meant was if their families didn't want them and they were a burden to their families, that it was better for them to not be alive and put in that situation than to be f- forced to be a burden or getting or, a little eugenicsy here it again. was very, yeah it was <laughs> not not correct in any way not good but i i think it was it was more than just oh people with mental disabilities shouldn't be alive i think it was well it I mean, was better for everyone wasn't rand um maybe like a little stunted himself or you said he had a very low iq right um, that was a different person. Oh, I'm sorry. Never mind. That's okay. But it's it's unclear throughout this whole thing whether because he when he was arrested he put on this show of very much being in a like a catatonic. Like he, I mean, yeah. this is something he could have totally learned from any of the patients that exactly you know he, yeah he saw at Willowbrook when he worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also wondering too if Rand said some things mm-hmm. that. The Reverend Musket <laughs> uh, interpreted mm-hmm. maybe differently than yeah. what Rand was saying, or maybe Rand was, I don't know, talking or rambling or whatever, mm-hmm. and Reverend Musket kind of connected some dots on his own or like yeah. filled in some blanks on his own. And then now, not only is he relaying secondhand information, mm-hmm. but it, it's kind of like the game of telephone. Yeah, exactly. Rand says something. He hears something. He interprets it. Yeah. And now, now however many years later, he's repeating it. it. And then not only, yeah, not only repeating it later, but years later. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing that Reverend Musket said was he himself had a son with a mental disability and that he thinks that Rand was or is possessed. You like I'm pulling a lot of our mm, recent episodes yeah, into one. I, a lot of callbacks here, man. <laughs> a lot of stuff. So you throw po- that, you throw possession into the mix. I'm starting. to... I know uh, it's like well, he confessed, like, but oh, also right. maybe he was possessed. 
So there was another instance where Rand was shown the Willowbrook expose by investigators who were trying to get him to confess. And be like, oh no, he got that wrong. Yeah. So when they showed this to him, Rand's comment was, see, we were victims too, meaning the staff at Willowbrook, Hmm. which we did kind of talk about. The staff was kind of victimized in that they were thrown into this situation. If anyone has ever worked somewhere that's understaffed, they treat the staff they do have like absolute shit, mm-hmm. usually. And they if were you worked just, retail yeah. or service industry, <laughs> you know. And it's like they were doing the best that they had, but they were kind of villainized by this expose. Well, and because it, when you're in that situation, like, you kind of have to, if there is no other option. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like the uh, the rugby players in the Andes. Like, mm-hmm. in order to survive, they did what they had to. And a yeah. lot of people are like, oh, no, you that's awful. Like, You're a cannibal. <laughs> how could you possibly ever do a thing like that? Yeah. Um, actually, when we were in uh, Argentina, or when we were in Uruguay, they have a museum uh, to these people, to the survivors. <gasps> and to this, it's very well done. Like, it is fascinating. Yeah. And it, it's very little on the whole cannibalism thing. There's there's so much more to the story that yeah. is it, and and just like that that hero's story of survival and everything that they had to go through. Yeah, uh, of course, you know, eating their friends um, that were already dead. Yeah, to be clear. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, you know, it's it's when you're in that unwinnable position of like I know this isn't right Mm -hmm. but there is no other option you kind of turn off part of your brain and you're just like well this is my only option so this is what I'm going to do I'm just going to throw slop in these people's mouths for three minutes and and hope that (laughs) they get enough nutrients in order to keep them alive and and so like yeah they, they probably And, like, you just have to kind of close off parts Mm -hmm. of your humanity in order to deal with that kind of situation. Yeah. So I I can totally see how these people would be seen as villains. But, like... But that's... Yeah. I mean, they, they, they didn't start out that way. Yeah, exactly. The other thing, when Rand saw the expose, he... After he said, you know, we were also victims, he also went comatose again and didn't speak for two days. And he didn't confess to anything. But I have a note here. I think it's very interesting that the expose, originally its intent was to kind of garner sympathy or outrage at the conditions of, you know, but it, ultimately it's sympathy for these patients mm-hmm. of this. So people with mental disabilities. But the the legend of Cropsy was kind of born out of this fear and misunderstanding. I mean, the part of the legend that says oh, he was an escaped mental patient, that's coming from a place of fear and misunderstanding mm-hmm. instead of a place of, oh my gosh, these people who were just put here by their families are being horribly mistreated. So, a little... Again. Well, I'm, and then also everyone being so quick to blame him. Yeah. Because of the fear and misunderstanding of the homeless. Yeah. And I mean, granted, he does have a colorful rap sheet. <laughs> yeah, he's not that blameless. That <laughs> really lines up with the whole, you know, missing children thing. So, I mean, mm-hmm. again, I'm not saying he's innocent, mm-hmm. but I don't think he's guilty beyond, you know, a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad he was not convicted for the murder of yeah. that girl. I am sorry for that girl's family. Yeah. 
and I, I hope that they can get comfort and closure one day. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, and I'm sorry, cause this is not going to have a, a satisfying ending. When does it ever? <laughs> but Josh and Barbara wrote letters back and forth to Rand in prison. Mm-hmm. And he also did this during investigations. He was talking to police and he kept kind of hinting at meeting, like he would do this with Josh and Barbara. He would kind of hint at, yeah, I'll meet you. I'll talk to you and I'll be part of your documentary. And then he would pull out at the last minute. And he did the same thing with investigators. And someone mentioned that it was kind of like a game to Mm -hmm. him. Well, when you're in prison, what else do you have going on? Exactly. And eventually Josh and Barbara were able to speak to his sister. They tracked down his sister And they kind of talked to her, and she said, you know, I haven't talked to my brother in years and years. I don't want to, you know, speculate. She said, all I can say is we, people have often speculated that we were abused as kids. We weren't. And then she said, one thing I do want to tell you is I think that Andre is manipulating you. And that was like, I mean, that wasn't the end of the documentary, but it kind of tied, it just adds a whole other layer of like, Is he stunted in some way or is he super smart and he's manipulating everyone? It's like, is he just this victim and the scapegoat or is he really smart? Or is he just a normal person who has a whole lot of extra time on his hands to Mm -hmm. think about these things and, you know, yeah, play a game with these people like you know, he, it might be one of those things of like, if he's innocent, he's like, I know I'm innocent. I know I'm in here wrong. Yeah. And I know that no matter how much and how loudly I scream, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Mm-hmm. People have already made up their minds about me. Yeah. Like they, they've already condemned me to this. Yeah. So you know what? I'm not even going to waste my time and energy trying to fight it mm-hmm. because there is no winning it. So I'm just going to have some fun with it, you know? Yeah. That. I know it's it's very gray. Mm-hmm. So whether or not Andre Rand was a scapegoat for a terrified community or a mentally ill sex offender who preyed on children or some combination of both, whether or not he felt sympathy towards these children because a couple of the kids who disappeared did have mental disabilities. So whether he was feeling sympathy for them or saw that they saw the way that people had been mistreated at Willowbrook and thought that no one deserves this. They're better off if I kill them. Misplaced sympathy for their families. Yeah. And again, you have to think if he was seeing, if he was immersed daily in what was happening at Willowbrook, I feel like if you, there's a, there's a very twisted logic that you can kind of see of, no one deserves to be like this. If this is the only option, they're better off dead. Yes. And I mean, well, that kind of goes back to the whole, you're put in an impossible situation, yeah. a no-win situation. So you have to turn off parts of your humanity mm-hmm. in order to deal with it and just do the best that you possibly can. Yeah. And so after years and years of that, like you can you can see how that twisted logic would come about. Yeah, exactly. Um, because I'm sure that you know, some of those patients probably were like, there was absolutely no way they could stay with their families. Like, their mm-hmm. families were in no way equipped to yeah. give these people the care and attention that they needed. Yeah. Versus there might have also been some that probably would have been, or at least maybe he thought in his mind didn't really need to be there. Yeah. And they were just dumped there by their families yeah. who didn't want to deal with them. Yeah, for sure. 
Either way, Andre Rand maintains his innocence. And this is the quote from the end of the documentary. <laughs> uh, so this is Josh's own words saying, Urban legends don't claim to be the truth, but rather they say the truth is a range of possibilities and it is the audience that must decide. I like that. It was very fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also the end of my <laughs> my spiel. It's, I don't know, it's cropsy, whether it was real or not. So that's the part that I love most about urban legends is mm-hmm. not the story itself, yeah. but the, the seeds of truth it's rooted in. Yeah. And uh, so that was a good one. Yeah. So, um, so even though he's behind bars, Cropsy lives on Cropsy in the lives on. minds of and fears of children in Staten yes. Island. Yep. Good. Uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> what is our social media? <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at the Tales We Tell podcast. In the, in our bio, we've got a link tree that'll take you to our website, thetaleswetellpodcast.com. If you are not a social media person, you can go there. You can see all the photos and videos and fun stuff that we post. Uh, we also have our Redbubble store. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to redbubble.com slash thetaleswetell if you want some sweet, sweet merch. Yep. And if you just love us and adore us so much... We also love and adore you, too. You can become patrons on our Patreon. So yep. it's patreon.com slash, uh, or just search the Tales We Tell podcast. Yep. And uh, we've always got, you know, fun bonus content and goodies and fun stuff. And, yes. you know, Actually, anyone who wants a sticker, just message us. Yeah, literally just send us a message. Or We'd love to send it. you a letter and a sticker and all our love. Yeah. Do you have something you're looking forward to this week besides your vacation? I uh, just, I'm just <laughs> so excited to get up to the murder cabin and nice. make it still even more less murdery. Less murdery yeah. every time. Uh, Chilton's mom, so my mother-in-law is actually going to come meet us out there. Oh, uh, fun! She's staying in a hotel. She's <laughs> like, uh, no. She doesn't uh, want to stay at the murder. I'm cabin. Not sleeping on an airbed with no electricity and no running water sounds or indoor like, plumbing. Sounds like my kind of gal. Yeah. <laughs> So, but we're we're gonna go up and have some adventures and hang out and just a, a really nice time, you know, visiting her nice. and seeing the cabin. So, what about you? Um, I think mine is just going. I'm going out to a local bar tonight when we're done. <laughs> um, because I have tomorrow off. Tomorrow's my day off, and uh, I've made my Monday routine to stay semi-productive but also social. My best friend works at the bar I'm going to. So I'm going to go and, like, be that person at the end of the bar who's, like, typing away and being weird and working on stuff, but also getting to hang out and, um... Yeah, chat when she's free, yeah. go back to work and when she's got to work herself. So. Yeah, exactly. So, well, everyone, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week. Bye! Bye!